0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host today, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Bahriya Kemal. She is Senior Lecturer in Postcolonial and Contemporary Studies at the University of Kent. We will be discussing her newly published book, Writing Cyprus. Post-Colonial and Partitioned Literatures of Place and Space, published by Routledge, 2020. Bahriyeh, I am thankful beyond words for your time and for your wisdom.
1: Hi, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed the scholar you would become as an adult?
1: Yeah, so as you said, I'm a senior lecturer in postcolonial and contemporary studies. Um and I focus particularly on displacement uh, and spatial theory, so the relationship to place and space. Um and all of my research is grounded in um an interdisciplinary approach. So I'm a postcolonial literary scholar, but social sciences, is always figures in my work, whether that be anthropology, sociology, geography, politics, that which is linked to the lived experiences. And outside of my research, or maybe connected to my research, I'm a part of multiple organizations, NGOs, charities in the UK and the Mediterranean that work with displaced people. So it's predominantly humanitarian work um, that I focus on. And the catalyst for this, um, for this particular department is exactly linked to your question of where did you grow up, where were you from? So I am a London-born Cypriot. Um, my parents are migrants. They arrived here. Um, I'm in the UK. So they arrived into London, the former imperial centre, in the 1960s together with thousands of bubbers from Cyprus and, of course, other um, former British colonies uh, during the decolonial moment, so the 50s and the 60s. And then, of course, I went to school with a diverse group of Londoners, um, all with uh, different migrant backgrounds connected to former colonies, whether that be India, uh, Kenya, Nigeria, Caribbean, Um, So this, of course, this kind of um, impacted a lot of my research. Uh, At the same time, throughout my upbringing, my parents always spoke about return, um, returning to their birth home, Cyprus. Though I was not quite sure what that return meant throughout my childhood because I was a Londoner. I was born in London. And ultimately, they did return um, uh, back to Cyprus. Uh, I... With them, I so I completed my BA, uh, my first degree in Cyprus. Then I came back here uh, for my postgraduate studies. So here in the UK, and then of course I spent some time traveling and doing humanitarian work across the globe. That that ended up being the globe of formerly colonized locations. So I kind of share this story of 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 my being and becoming because all of that being and becoming impacted and grounded. Uh, my research, grounded it in terms of uh, focusing on formerly colonized locations, grounded it in terms of it being linked to uh, lived experiences where literature become uh, and is core, but of course, like I said, crossing into disciplines. So the sociology and ethnography of everyday life has always been and will continue to be really significant in my research.
0: What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers?
1: I think this is kind of twofold in terms of the inspiration. So, yes, okay, there's there's the element that I am Cypriot, and out of, or London-born Cypriot, with a uh, uh, heritage linked to Cyprus, a formerly called Alal's location. Um, but it's also the overwhelming importance that I noticed of the, the case of Cyprus, the territory of Cyprus, at the crossroads of the world. Um, and what I recognized um, throughout my work, throughout my research, post-colonial studies, it was automatic. You know, I, I identified with post literatures. Um It spoke to me in terms of my positionality. Um, uh, but what I noticed, even though there was common ground, what I noticed was the absence of Cyprus. So the case of Cyprus did not figure in post-colonial studies, post-colonial literary studies. The literatures of Cyprus did not figure. Um, and I recognised the overwhelming importance of Cyprus to contribute to post-colonial studies, to contribute to uh, partition studies, but that was a kind of trigger to say to me, okay, the case of Cyprus needs to be studied within a post-colonial partition framing. Um the other inspiration was that um all of my knowing of Cyprus, I guess, whether that be as a scholar or who lived experiences, was always about the conflict and deadlock and partition and the division. And it was very binary. It's like separate it Um and but, but when I started, when I delved deep into our literatures, Um, the literatures of Cyprus, which is uh, um, a transnational world literature, I recognized that the literatures were a force um, to blur the dominant binary legacy of historical political deadlock discourse. That till that point, that's all I knew about Cyprus, you know, deadlock constantly. Um, So this ended up being a kind of inspiration. and, And the message that I guess the book gives is Just showing the the power of literature to create peace, I guess, the power of literature to blur dominant binary legacies of historical political deadlock discourse, and instead to capture processes of solidarity and common ground. So shared experience of the spaceman, shared experiences of suffering, but also um, a common ground in terms of the aesthetics and writing style, and its contributions to our literary canons and of canons.
0: What are the primary themes in your book? What story and stories does your book tell?
1: I guess ultimately, it's a it's a writing of experiences, a writing of impacts related to colonialism, anti-colonialism, and subsequent post-colonial failures like conflict and war as related to the importance of place and space. And literature is in here, of course, and Cyprus is, is the case study for this. And out of this comes various key thematics, so the power of place and space in post-colonial and partition cases, um, the importance of education um, uh, that, that figures in cases like, post partition cases like Cyprus, nationalism is a lover king theme, ethnic nationalism or gendering of the nation. Um others we I can think about are thinking about the communism, which is quite core in uh, both the politics of Cyprus, but also in the in the literatures where a romantic ecology is operating. Um, and another theme could be uh those of the diaspora and displacement that it's more about um a multi-communal, so um, a diverse community, as opposed to as opposed to a binary um, community. And the book, I guess, in terms of the story, what's the story? The story is, um, and stories are a new way of reading, writing, and constructing cypress, a differential cypress, a cypress that is uh, grounded in displacement, um, but also one that catches solidarity, um, and one that shows that this tiny island um, actually has implications to to know the literature, cultures, um, politics, and history of the region. So thinking of it in terms of post-British, post-Ottoman, there's a colossal geography and a long history related to that. And it also has implications on understanding Europe, and the UK and that post-colonial world.
0: What is your book's contribution to the study of post-colonialism?
1: I think it's multifold here. So first and foremost, of course, it introduces the case of Cyprus, a new case study uh, that, when I was writing my book, um, hadn't been done before. And this contribution gives way to a meeting between partitional studies and post-colonial studies. Uh, this, cor- this kind of offering of Cyprus also gives way to showing uh, the power and importance of place and space. So in, in post-colonial studies, the concept of place and space is always core, cool, right? Um, Cyprus shows its overwhelming importance, how the relationship with space and space determines one's identity and positionality. Uh, Cyprus also shows another really important thing in that the study of post-colonialism predominantly focuses on, uh, which I think is a limitation, um, on just Western imperial regimes from the 19th century, British or French. But what Cyprus says is, we need, we need a comparative imperialism. So how about we look at the British and the Ottoman, and the implications this has had. Uh, so, it also contributes that. Um, and it also, I think, kind of calls out and says hey, okay, postgradual literary studies, postgradual studies has strengths, but it also has many limitations, whether that be in terms of the comparative imperialism, but also the fact that. Um, post clinal literary studies itself cannot carry the weight of a case like Cyprus. So let's cross disciplines. Uh, Let's move into um, politics and bring politics and literature together. Given that space and place is so important, let's move to geography and think about a geo-humanity. Let's move to sociology, ethnography, anthropology. And I guess this is... um, the book's contribution
0: what is your book's contribution to literary theory
1: i guess um it's kind of threaded and connected to what we've been we've been discussing in terms of its contribution to postcolonialism so it, it it contributes to literary theory by offering and thinking about a geo-humanities the importance of um uh, and and relationship to geography, um, but it also offers a new way of understanding um, our canons and counter canons. So, the literatures of Cyprus themselves understudied, unknown, um, but have much to contribute to uh, literary theory. And I think the most important thing that it contributes is to think about literature as a transnational world literature that's written in Multiple different languages by multiple communities. Um, and it offers a kind of meeting between uncanonized minor literatures like those, of, uh, those by Cypriots that meets uh, canonized literature, whether that be English literature. In the case of Cyprus, we also have Greek literature, Turkish literature as um, uh, dominant canons. And then, of course, we've got the post-colonial counter canon that's broad and covering a, 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 a kind of world scope, I guess, where Cyprus speaks to all of these.
0: Can you tell us about the author Tanner Bybars, who is mentioned in your work? Is he significant?
1: Oh, yes. Um, Taner Baybaz is really um, a fantastic, fantastic Cypriot author. Um, he was born in Cyprus in a village um, and started by writing in Turkish, one of his um, first poetry collections, Mendilimen Udjunul so that on the tip of my handkerchief, was one of his first poetic collections. And... Throughout his process, throughout the years, um, he was part of and contributed to the different literary generations that were operating in Cyprus, whether that be um, the nationalist writers, um, the anti-colonial writers, um, then the, the, the writers of the diaspora, because he left Cyprus and moved to London. And that's when he's kind of transitioned and started writing um, in English, uh, both poetry, and he has a beautiful memoir called uh, Plucked in uh, Far Off Land that he wrote in uh, in English. Um, so the significance of Baibar is that he kind of um, speaks to all of the different literary generations, and then... Ends up creating a, a poetics uh, and, and a literature that is very inclusive of Cyprus's history, um, that is inclusive in the sense of responding to key nationalizing moments that were happening in the island. But then, of course, he moves to the UK. So then he ends up um writing the narrative. That is was that responds to experiences of migration and displacement, and the hostilities that one experiences um, and did experience when they came uh, here to uh, London um, to live in London. So, yeah, I think he's a he's a really really fantastic figure um, that has that's contributed a lot, both to the literatures of Cyprus, but also to um, the English literary, English literatures as well.
0: Can you tell us about Oscar Yassin?
1: Oh, Oscar Yassin, he's an interesting, sugar. so of course he's considered the national poet of and for Turkish secrets. Uh, when I say the Turkish secrets, I mean the nationalist canon. So he's an ethnic nationalist writer. He wrote, um, so he's a novelist, a poet, a playwright. And he wrote um, particularly um, in the 50s and 60s and 70s in response to key nationalizing Romans. But what I found really and do find very interesting about Escaria Shin's work is um, if we look at other anti colonial uh, writers um, from across Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, um, what we see is a lo- common ground between Oscar Shin's writing um, in response to the nationalising moments and then the writings coming out of Kenya, coming out of um, Nigeria, um, where gendering the nation, a like gendered nationalism uh, becomes quite core and quite central. Um, so, of course, Oscar is a figure who promoted and supported politically uh, a Turkish Cyprus, which means a Turkey Cyprus. So a, a Cyprus that's united with Turkey in one way or another. So in this concept of Aksim uh, partition. But what's really interesting about Yashin is that his children, Meshe Yashin and um, Mehmet Yashin, um, kind of wrote back and wrote against um his kind of um framing, his kind of identification, his reading, writing, and construction of the Turkey cyclists. So yeah, I think he's a is is he's, he's a fantastic figure that kind of comes in a package because because his children are also renowned writers that wrote back to him. But I just want to also flag up before I do um move on, is that um Oskar Yashin is not freestanding in, in in the sense of the only one that speaks to the anti-colonial literary canon or the anti-colonial nationalist uh, canon uh, or counter-canon within post-colonial studies. Um, yeah, he, he, and I do, my work has, has studied Oskar Yashin with um, other great figures like Kostas Montes, um, who is also focusing on a kind of gendered nationalism and using a specific aesthetics in writing the nation and narrating the nation. Um, And there's a lot of parallels and similarities between this kind of group of writers um, that are uh, fantastic and that also have have, have a very important for our um, understanding of post literary studies.
0: Can you tell us about Nesse
1: Yashin? Yes, yeah, so Nesse Yashin is Askel Yashin's daughter. Um, like I said, uh, she kind of, she's a figure who wrote back to the nationalist moment in the 60s and 60s, wrote back to her father, if you like, um, and she could, she belongs to what you, we can call the post-74 generation, who strived for... Um, and was committed to uh, a peace politics um, focused on a united Cyprus, um, a, a, a Cyprus that's not divided and partitioned, inclusive of both Turkish and Greek Cypriot communities. Um, and she, she's one of the core figures. Um, one of her first novels um, focused on, you know, she's one of the first to focus on romance across the divide, and this is uh, this is um, an, a literary uh, concept or theme, I guess, that figures in a lot of other partitions texts. Where you know, when we think about the Place of wine, and for example, um, and she's one of the first to have done that insight for us, but also one of the first to to have um, done and, and thought about this notion of romance across the divide. Um and she's she's been fantastic in her contributions to um a distinct Cypriot poetics um and collaborative work. So working with people across the divide, especially. Um and this was before the borders are opened in two thousand and three. So um she would find ways to collaborate, either flying out to London Uh, with people from across the divide, so that means, of course, Greek Cypriots. Um, And her her poem, it goes something like this, like my my father said, you must, one of the lines, my father said you must love your homeland. Um, My homeland is split in two. Which side am I meant to love? Now this and I'm I'm sorry because I've probably bodged up because I don't have the exact point here and of course it's Turkish and it been translated, but um this has become the bi-communal anthem for Cypriots. Um so you know, she's really significant in terms of uh being a pioneering figure that has pushed towards um disrupting the binary that's operating in Cyprus. How
0: have Cypriot writers engaged with the long and more recent history and politics of the island and the region.
1: So what I think I could say about um, the literature of Cyprus is that there's the writers uh, of Cyprus, and when I'm saying literatures of Cyprus, I, I, I do I mean um, the writers who are Cypriot, so Cypriot uh Cypriot Greek, Cypriot Armenian, Cypriot Maronite. But also, we could, do, when I'm saying literature of Cyprus, it also includes um, uh, writers from the outside, right? So, writers uh, from the former from the British writers, English writers who arrived in Cyprus as colonialists, or writers from Turkey, writers from Greece. Um, and what is really significant about all of the narratives that I come across and red and that figure in writing Cyprus is that that the narratives are all a a response to what is happening on the island a reaction to what is happening in the island and a writing to what is happening in the island. So that historical moment of um, the British arriving, that historical moment of the Cypriots rising up against the British. That historical moment of the Cypriots ethnically cleansing each other, particularly Greek Cypriots. That historical moment of um, gaining independence, of them going into a civil war, of them being partitioned, of them being divided. So all of these moments, all of these pivotal nationalizing moments are core and central to um, the literature. So you can pick up, rather than picking up a, bo- a, a history book um, or a book on politics, you can read the literatures to understand the history and politics of the island from the perspective of people with lived experiences. So I mean, it's an unofficial history and an unofficial politics that captures actual lived experiences.
0: Thank you. Can you tell us about Napoleon Terzis?
1: Oh, yes. Napoleon Terzis is absolutely (laughs) very special, a very, very special poet to me for multiple reasons. You may have noticed that the book opens with Napoleon Terzis writing Cyprus, and it closes with Napoleon Terzis. And he's a kind of spectra that figures throughout the book. And I feel I just want to read sure. a passage sure. from his poem. So it goes something like this. I'm just reading it from the open book. Oh. Like a wanderer, I hang around aimlessly in homes that belong to others. They say, you're a Marilyn. They gave you your home. Napoleon, you're lucky. You will live in God like it is. You will forget, Adios Pablos. Nicosia will no longer see me." If, in the end, Cyprus is dividing, would you choose to live in the south or would you choose the north? Now, what's significant here for me is multiple things. Firstly, um, Napoleon Tepesia is a Maronite Cypriot. When it comes to the case of Cyprus, in any study, whether it be a literary study or politics study, a history study, whatever scholarship, unfortunately priority is on Turkish Cypriots or Greek Cypriots and others um, within the community are um, bypassed, ignored and heard and that includes the Maronite Cypriots. So I found it so important to be inclusive of of this voice not just because he is a Maronite Cypriot, you know a long he's lot he's got a long historical, relationship with the island, but also because what he is writing about is so relevant uh, to the case of Cyprus, but also um, so relevant to understanding the region and understanding post-colonial studies more broadly. So what we see in his poetics is the importance of place and space, the importance of um, where one um lives their village and then that kind of uprooting where there's a sense of lack of uh, belonging and a longing to belong to a place Um, so even though Napoleon Telsier has not yet uh, published the whole book uh, he's in the process of preparing his uh, debut collection that will be out soon, Hopefully, we're working together on that Um, I his poetry that has been published in newspapers or that he hasn't been published, but he, he writes stuff in Facebook, for example, and, and other social media platforms, um, are really significant and important in their in their contribution.
0: Thank you. Can you tell us about Alev Adil?
1: Yeah, I Alev Adil, um, she's a writer of the diaspora, so born in Cyprus and then uh, moved to the to London, grew up in London, um, and she is, I'd say, very experimental in her uh, ways of writing and narrating, uh, where different forms of stars are merged into each other. So she's an artist. At the same time, she's a poet. But she also writes prose, and we see this kind of, intergeneric traffic operating in her writing. Um, so she speaks to a very nuanced and distinct post-colonial contemporary um literature. But at the same time, um what's really beautiful and fascinating about her work, like Venus in first, for example, a poetry collection, um, is the spatial palimpsest that's operating in her work. So, um, she writes from a positionality of displacement, um, of someone of the diaspora that's, that's kind of in between, but not in between the two things, in between multiple things. So the ancient, um, stories and mythologies and biblical references figure in her work and they're made new. And this is not just like she's of Turkish Cypriot heritage. This is not just Islamic or the Turkish histories. This is the ancient Greek histories. And the other ancient histories are operating within the region, meaning the Mediterranean. Um, uh, and all of these spatial panemtastic kind of layers are central to her work, shape her poetics. Um, and they're shaping that. Speaks back to the narratives that came before, like the nationalists that are quite set in their ways and fixed with identifying with a singular culture and a singular history and a singular language. What we see with the car is a multiple, multiple cypress. Like I talk about this kind of multiple, multiple cypress, this differential cypress, this one this cypress that as a diasporic solidarity. And we see that in Al-Abab as work. Well.
0: How do the works that you examine here capture similarities and parallels between Cyprus and other cases and countries subject to similar history and politics? For example, how are Ireland, India, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict presented in the works of the authors you examine here?
1: So I, I feel, first and foremost, when 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 one reads the literatures coming out of or related to Cyprus, and then one turns to the literatures in Ireland, India, uh, Israel, Palestine, um, automatically there is a common ground. A common ground because they have a shared history, uh, in terms of then the long history within the region, uh, where, with the face of say um Cyprus and Israel-Palestine, it's the Mediterranean history. That is shared um, from ancient times, through to the Ottoman rule and then the British rule, and then of course all of the examples that you've just listed there—all former the British colonies um, that was that subsequently experienced partition, that subsequently experienced conflict, war, uh, and different issues as a result of the divide and rule policy. So there's a shared kind of history and politics that is operating with the writers. And then this gives way for the style and aesthetics within their narratives to be shown um, and to, for there to be a kind of common ground in terms of the writing style and, and the form um, and the ways of navigating and negotiating with that particular history and that particular politics that shared.
0: Can you tell us about Theodosius Pierides?
1: Oh, yes. Um, so that's another uh very interesting um prose writer. Um what's really interesting about Theodosius Pierides is that if you're introduced to him in Cyprus, um in the education, his Greek he's, he writes in Greek, so it would be predominantly Greek secrets yeah, at school who would study him he falls in the umbrella of the nationalists. He's writing poetry against, you read one of his poems called Agreement, I thought it is, um, that's writing against the British Empire. Um, But then when you delve a little bit deeper, you realise that actually Theodophysus Pierides is not a one-trick pony. He actually is a writer of the diaspora and he belongs to the Greek Cypriot Egyptian bias. He moved with his family as a child to uh Cairo. He grew up there. He studied there. And then he became a core figure in the literary scene and contributed so much to the nationalising moments in Egypt. And then, of course, as a result of um the fifties and sixties nationalizing movement in Egypt, he was forced to leave. Well um, but he was forced to leave prior to that because the Brit he was exiled by the British because he was a communist. And he was on the road. So what's really sad, I guess, he has a very thin archive. Um I've been kind of yeah, working currently on my new research on, on him particularly. He figures in my book as well. Um saying so he has a very, very thin archive. The archive of the his writings on Cyprus, about Cyprus, on his politics, on on uh, the nationalist framing, uh, they're very they're accessible. But the communists in him, they are they have they're not accessible because he was on the road constantly and kind of exiled and wanted. He kept throwing away all of his his writings. Um, but yeah, he's. Um, Hopefully I'll find more and keep my search with accessing um his works in the archives. I've just found an archive of a lot of his work. Um but he does figure in, in writing Cyprus, um, particularly in relation to um his appearance in the education curriculum, um, where students study him as more of a national poet as opposed to the, the kind of radical communist that he was. And it's his past now, but yes.
0: who, who is Stefanos Stefanides? Can you elaborate uh, upon him?
1: Oh yes. So he's another diaspora. Um, but a London diaspora. So he arrived in uh London in in the UK with his father in the 50, 60s, I think. I, I'm not I might have got the dates wrong, but anyway, he, he did move here. Um he writes in English. Uh, I kind of see parallels between him and the in my book them two, um figure together in, in the diaspora chapter um, thinking about them within the framework of being rhythm analysts so uh, figures who um, read, write and construct place, time and the expenditure of energy and think about this relationship now, Estefano um he's, he's a poet, um, he's also a filmmaker, also a professor and academic, and his writing um, offers a kind of distinct Mediterranean uh, poetics. Um, so it's focused on Cyprus within a post-gradal framing, so thinking of British connections, thinking of the Ottoman connections, uh, but also inclusive of the region as well. Um and again what's really interesting about Stefano Stefanides is is his um his now, his writing and, and his work and his lived experiences is very much about disrupting borders and violence. So what we see in his work is that he has what I've kind of called a literary double and a triple where he writes with and through a Turkish Cypriot, like the amazing uh, Gurgenç, who's a poet. Um, but he also um, writes through Greek Cypriots who remained in Cyprus because he did a um, So we kind of see uh, that he's done a lot of translation work, or he's collaborated with people like Rikimara Roo, uh who writes quite a lot on a poet who writes for the Mediterranean and um, but yeah, so Stepanino is another significant figure like Alevadil, I'd say, in terms of his um literatures and poetics.
0: Can you tell us about education educational and pedagogical policy in Cyprus under mm-hmm. colonial rule and after independence?
1: Yes, I think education was my first kind of going to, because when I decided to write this book, um, I was born and brought up in the UK, right? And all of my education in terms of literature uh was what we could call the Western canon. Um and this meant that I didn't study any Cypriot literatures or literatures of Cyprus, literatures in Cyprus. So in order to kind of understand what what exactly are and is the literatures of Cyprus, my go-to was the education. And I thought, let me see Okay, I've had an education abroad in the UK, but let me see what the kids are studying inside for us. So I delved into the education curriculum, the long history of the education curriculum, the literature curriculum, starting from as far back as the Ottoman moment all the way through to the present moment and exactly looking at every single text that was read. Now, what was very interesting about this kind of process was first and foremost, both sides, Um, or first and foremost let's say that education was always divided so uh, Turkish Cypriots had a separate education and Greek Cypriots had a separate education so that's the first thing I noticed the second thing I noticed was that the literatures prioritised identified and actually used the curriculum of Turkey or Greece so the Turkish Cypriot used Turkey's curriculum, or the Ottoman and the Greek Cypriots use Greece's curriculum, which means for much of Cyprus's history, there was no Cypriot literature because the, the literature by Cypriots because literature by Cypriots do not figure in the Turkish from, turkeys or Greece's literary canon. And then, of course, the moment of decolonization happens. That's the moment when. Uh, the Cypriots are independent, and changes start happening. But just before that, during British colonial rule, the British did during the anti-colonial movement and just before they did try to touch the education, and by touching I mean change the education. And what they what they wanted to do was to Cypriotize the education. What does that mean? That kind of means less enter the curriculum of its ethnic heritage, so it's neither Greek nor Turkish, and let's make it Cypriot, which sounds great, but really that's a form of de-ethnicizing the island. So of course sides rejecting this. And then once they once independence happened, and then the unfortunate civil wars and partition happened in 1924, um slowly both sides. Realise that they need to be inclusive of Cypriots, whether that be because, in the case of uh, the Republic of Cyprus, they wanted to go into Europe, and if you want to go into Europe, there's certain EDI equality, diversity, inclusivity policies, and there was no Turkish Cyp uh, no Cypriot sorry that was figuring in in the canon, and so at this point, the literature starts to change, and both sides starts to include Cypriot literatures, meaning literatures by Cypriot, but only those from their own ethno-linguistic community. So a Greek Cypriot student does not study a Turkish Cypriot uh, poem and vice versa, which is very problematic. Um, And also another kind of problematic problem with the uh, education is that um, only about 10% of the curriculum consists of Cypriot writing. The rest of it consists of writing either by and from Greece's literary canon and Turkey's literary canon. But this, of course, says so much in terms of uh, the education policies and the nationalism uh, that it creates and the propaganda that operates within these, these literatures where it is not inclusive of all the people of the island.
0: Can you tell us about George Moleskis? Why is he significant?
1: Uh George Moleskis, I I've George fig- figures in the, the the chapter that focuses on why called the Cypriotists, um kind of speaks to a left positioning, a communism, um with an element of a romantic ecology. So what we see with Moleskis is a love for the island. Is rejecting this notion of mother Greece and mother Turkey. And instead, saying, "Do you know what? Let's focus on mother Cyprus. Let's focus on our homeland." But what we see with Moleskis is a poetics so of a romantic ecology with a love for the island, um, a focus on its nature, a focus on its culture and its history, um, on social, political practices, but related to the everyday life of people. It's the people that are the focus in his work. Um, And there's also, in his writing, a kind of communist sentiment um, where we're seeing a kind of radical left uh, poetics operating, but also we're seeing a Marxist framing that's operating where the proletariat, constantly speaks and acts and moves and creates change. Um, so I think he's, a, he's a, a wonderful figure. And what I love about Moleskis as well is that his work is uh, collaborative in the sense that he has worked with other Cypriots on the island. So he um, works very closely with Ticlete Mira And Ticlete Mira also belongs to that group of poets, the Cypriotists, who long for a kind of, uh, a a Cyprus, that is not divided, a Cyprus that's not going to well with ethnic nationalism or with hatred, but a Cyprus of peace. So I would call Moleski and Fikretemira and others, multiple others, the peace poets. You know, poets for peace, peace poets, poets for peace, and that's exactly what they are. Um, when you read their poetry,
0: can you say more about Fikret Demirag? Can you contextualise him?
1: Yeah, so Fikret Demirag was born in Uh, Neske, uh In the, he's a Cypriot, born and brought up Turkish speaking Cypriot. Um, he his writing um, is quite similar to Miletus in the sense that he there's a romantic ecology in his work as well, where it's the nature, the history, the culture, the people of Cyprus that come alive in, was in his work, um, whilst also kind of navigating, negotiating with the the, the the politics of the island, you know, the horrors that are happening in the island. Because he was there, you know, at that moment in the 16s when the civil war began, and bloodshed was everywhere uh, but what we see in his writing is a writing of peace a writing that writes back to the violence and the bloodshed and the conflict and the hatred and a writing of peace and solidarity and he's celebrated especially by um, what we call those secrets every year in November uh, there's there's a festival that celebrates, celebrates his um contributions to rewriting of Cyprus, to writing a Cyprus that is inclusive, that is peaceful uh, and that operates in solidarity.
0: How have Cypriot writers presented the relationship and the interaction between ancient Greek and modern Greek literature, mythology, and language?
1: Uh, This one's really interesting. So if we we go back to think about whether it be the education curriculum or the nationalist writers, then you have the Greek Cypriots um, who identify with, engage with, Ancient Greek and modern Greek literatures. So that's what they study at school in education. And then the writers themselves, the poets and novelists um, of Greek Cypriot background, identify with them and use them. So mythology figures in in the poetics in various ways. With the nationalist groups and the education in Turkish Cypriot narratives they don't engage with ancient Greek or modern Greek literatures and mythologies, right? Because that's the, that's the literature from the other side. But then when we come to the Cypriotists, like the yon uh, Moleskis and Piglet-Demira and the writers of the diaspora, like Aleva and Stephanos and everybody who you've already asked about, what we see there is a very nice kind of palimpsestic uh space in the sense of the ancient Greek and modern Greek mythologies and are made moon. So Aphrodite uh is reborn as 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 someone else um with for example um links to the contemporary moment right um, like, for example, the Aphrodite gas fields are uh, being produced. So I mean, it's a making new of ancient Greek and modern Greek uh, mythologies and literature, um, regardless of your background. Is it, it? It's it's no longer, no longer at all, to saying I am. It's no longer a nationalist talk or a means of propaganda that links to being Greek. Um, and, it, and it's kind of made new, as we see with modernists uh, and their use of, of of mythology.
0: Can you tell us about <laughs> Suleiman Uluchamgil?
1: Oh, yeah. Introduce us to him. Yeah. Suleiman Uluchamgil is um, a poet martyr. He also belongs to um, the nationalist, the ethnic nationalist generation of what I have called the ethnic motherland, uh, nationalist generation, who identified with Turkey as the motherland and Cyprus as the babyland. So, of well, course, he's Turkey's secret. Uh, he was killed in the 60s as a result of conflict. What I really, really, really like about all of Chemge's work is the rawness of it. Is he? It's the... He captures the voice of everyday experiences, um, the everyday voice, the everyday spaces that one was living in at the time of his writing. And he's also really significant in his anti-colonial poetics. So a lot of the time with Turkish Cypriots and the narratives or the positionality at the time, it was more about a resistance against the Greek Cypriot anti-colonial movement, EOKA, rather than a resistance against the British. And the reason for this is that the British um, had what we could call the, collaborat- the collab- collaborative system. So it was a divide and war policy and they worked with the Turkish Cypriots and made them police against the Greek Cypriots. But what we get with Sonoban Iluçengli is something really interesting. He writes against the British. Um, and we do get this with many of them. You know, even through there was there's this uh, kind of pixity in saying that Turkish Cypriots were not anti colonial anti-British. They were more anti-Greek Cypriot uh, nationalists. Yes, there is an element of that. But what we see with Iluçengli's poetics is that he was and did write against British, um, in a really mm, interesting way that again shows common ground with others at the same time, these 60s, 60s, but in completely different geographies, Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, Jamaica, India, and we could keep moving across the globe. Separate geographies, but sh- a very, very similar shared narrative. Who was
0: Kostas Montis? Can you elaborate?
1: Yeah, Kostas Montis is um, one of our Cypriot uh, novelists and poets. He has gone down as the national poet of Cyprus for the Republic of Cyprus, so for the Greek-speaking. I would put him under the umbrella of all of cycles. Wonderful, wonderful writer. And he belongs to the national yeah. generation. You know, like, a lot of these writers are kind of belong to a certain generation. He's the generation that responded to the colonial moment and the anti colonial moment. And he has a beautiful book called Closed Doors An Answer to Lawrence Darrell. Of course, it's an answer to Bitter Lemons. Peter Lemons captured the anti-colonial struggles of the Greek Cypriots against the British. Um, it's a British man, English man, writing about the Cypriots. And Costas his writes back to this. And he writes from the perspective of um, a, 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 a secondary school um, student, uh, and which is really interesting because the moment of anti-colonial resistance, was made up of uh, students um, and it it just gives us a really powerful um, and direct capturing of what was happening in the region that kind of speaks back to Lawrence Durrell's narrative that up, up until then it was just everyone kind of mostly who did read about Cyprus would turn to bitter lemons. Um, so the history of Cyprus, uh, in, in the literary sense, was written by uh, an Englishman, And uh, Costas Montes claimed back this history and wrote this lovely piece, Closed Doors. Of course, he has so many other amazing creative pieces, but that's the one that is kind of out.
0: Can you say <laughs> something about Lawrence Durrell? Can you contextualize him for us?
1: Yes, yeah, so Lawrence Durrell is an English man. He um, lived in Cyprus for some time and we'll taught English there. He's a key figure in terms of trying to kind of shape the literary scene in Cyprus. Um, and he tried to shape the literary scene through what we could call a Cypriotization of the Cypriots. Uh this was problematic at the time in the 50s and the 60s because the Cypriots didn't identify with being Cypriot. The Cypriot identified with being Greek or Turkish. So Lawrence Durrell's kind of um, attempt to Cypriotize the literary scene was really a kind of British colonial policy. Let's empty them of their ethnic heritage, their Greekness and Turkishness, and create a Cypriot which would be a Cypriot loyal subject because the Greek or the Turk is not loyal, they resist against us. Um, and that was a massive blunder for him because Ernest was quite popular in the region um, with really renowned Greek figures from Greece and, and across the region. Um, and they all kind of stopped talking to him because, because it, what he tried to do became and was political. And what's really interesting is that he wrote Bitter, Bitter Lemons, um, which is a writing of and about uh the Ioka, which was the anti-colonial liberation front against the British. And the first page of his book says this is not a political book, but clearly it it was and is a political book because it it represented the Eoka in a particular way. Um and then, of course, we get Costas Montes writing back to that. Uh, but but still, Narnas is, is is a fabulous figure in that he captured the moment um, in uh, Bitter Lemons. And then, of course, he's also really significant for the region because he spent some time in Egypt and has written um, some excellent books uh, related to that. So uh, he does figure as, as, as someone quite important uh, in writing Cyprus.
0: How does your research advance our understanding of nationalism?
1: Um I think first and foremost is the case of Cyprus, uh, especially in post-colonial literary studies, has had never been studied up until this point. So anti-colonialism is anti-colonial nationalism is a central concept in um post-colonial studies. Uh and Cyprus really contributed to this. Um both developers are thinking about what it means to um, be an anti-colonialist, um, what it means to to uh, kind of write against the British, if you like, but then identify with another centre. So it brings this kind of dynamics into into the mix. Um, what it means to be a nationalist, but to be killing uh, your neighbour, right, your fellow countryman or woman. And so it brings all of this dynamics and, and a new way of thinking about nationalism. Uh, it also offers, um, like I said earlier, in terms of the gendered nationalism, a new way of thinking about a gendered nationalism that's one link to ideas of Mother Greece and Mother Turkey. So for the nationalists, the gendered nationalism was the Turkish Cypriot, Turkey is mother. For the Greek Cypriot, Greece is mother. And Cyprus is some kind of baby land. Um, but also, we see the disruption of this, where Cyprus kind of becomes a hermaphrodite. It's neither woman nor man, and this kind of fluid gendering uh, positionality that disrupts the idea of the nation. Uh, so, yeah.
0: Can you explain the metaphors of Mother Greece and Turkey? and child Cyprus, what do these mother-child analogies signify?
1: Yeah, so this just kind of continuing from, from what we just said about nationalism. So these these metaphors are uh, a form of gen- gendered nationalism. Um, for Turkish Cypriots and Greek Cypriot writers, um, they would identify the nationalist worlds uh, with either Turkey being the mother, the motherland, mother Turkey. Mother Turkey is going to come and save us. Mother Turkey made us. And it's the same dynamics we with Greek Cypriots for mother Greece. Uh, and then, of course, Cyprus becomes the child in this dynamic. Um, and it's a form of nationalism and a form of identifying and belonging and the love. For this alternative uh, centre, and then with time, after the nationalist moment, and we move on to the Cypriotist moment, there was a shift in Greece where Cyprus itself became a mother. Uh, mother Cyprus is, a, and a kind of rejection of Mother Greece and Mother Turkey. Um, and Cyprus was gendered again, this time either as a child that was martyred and destroyed, or a woman who was raped. And uh, abused um, by either the British Empire or by the other side, or in the case of the Cypriotists, it was both the nationalists and the British Empire that were raping Cyprus. So we get this quite a lot from Demira, who speaks about um, the the. The beautiful mother Cyprus, you know being raped and 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 uh destroyed
0: what is meant by the term and phenomenon cypriotism what are the different varieties of cypriotism
1: right, cypriotism is a really interesting one i think throughout my talk it's kind of popped up both through the writers that could be known to this uh this kind of what would i call it i'd call it um A cultural, definitely, yeah, I'd call it a cultural movement, a cultural movement, um, where it was birthed, we can say, through the British, who tried to Cypriotise the Cypriots in terms of emptying them of their ethnic heritage, saying, you know what, Cypriots are neither Greek nor Turkish, they're actually Cypriots. And there's a problematics there, because the people of the island did not identify with this position. The people of the island identified with either being Turkish or Greek. Of course, prior to that, they identified with religious, so being a Muslim or um, Orthodox Greek was the identification. Then identification became Greek or Turkish. Um, And then subsequently, after independence in the 60s, and then after um, the post-cranial founders and then being forced to be partitioned, there was, there was. but it started as early as the 60s where the Cypriots themselves started to say, do you know what? I'm neither Turk nor Greek. I'm a Cypriot. That's when Cypriotism by the Cypriots was kind of born. And what that means is I identify with my Cypriot heritage. Now that Cypriot heritage um means all of the layers that make up this island. Now there, there's you said there's different varieties of Cypriotism. So there is that variety of Cypriotism that still has the ethnic bend. Um so saying I'm a Turkish Cypriotist or a Greek Cypriotist. So the the notion of being a Cypriot comes in, but still identifying with uh, an ethnolinguistic uh position, Greek or Turkish. Um, then we have a Cypriotism um that is a Cypriotism of resistance. So I think this in itself also has a bit of a problematic it's a form of patriotism. It's one that rejects um being either Greek or Turkish and says we're actually Cypriots. We're not Greek, we're not Turkish, we're Cypriots. Um and being a Cypriot means identifying with the land and the sea and the tree, and and but there is an emptying of uh, ethnic identification. Um, and then there is a Cypriotism that we kind of see um, more with uh, the rights of the diaspora. Um, so it's a kind of post-Cypriotism where Cypriotism means identifying with The long history of colossal geography, inclusive of all and every um, kind of regime and experience has come to the island. So that means that the Ottoman and the ancient Greek and uh, the Franks and the Venetians and all of the other layers that make this island are a piece of me and a part of me. And we see all of this kind of operating within the literature so whatever i'm saying here is um born out of the literatures and of course these literatures are born out of what the people were feeling and living and experiencing at the time so separatism in short changes um, in accordance with the the particular moment the particular time so today separatism for younger generation, the emerging generation, is something very different to what it meant to their grandparents or their great-grandparents who lived in Cyprus.
0: Can you explain the similarities and differences between post-1964 and post-1974 Cypriot literature and pre-1964 and pre-1974 Cypriot literature? Can you describe the similarities and differences in themes and motifs. Can you tell us about trends in Cypriot literature between 1964 and
1: 1974? Yeah, this one, I think this one is, of course, is political, right? It's about that moment before 1960 is a moment of independence in Cyprus. And then come 64, um, there was uh, civil war and uh, fighting between the Turkish Cypriots and Greek Cypriots, and then come 1974, Turkey arrived and partitioned and uh, uprooted um, everyone within the island, and, and the divide was born. So the pre moment, we have the nationalists who were striving for either a Turkish Cyprus or a Greek Cyprus. The nationalist writers, as well. So, when I'm saying the nationalist, these writers were um, committed writers, committed in the sense that they were a part of the liberation movements. They served in them, they founded them. So, they were both committed in terms of um, politically, but also they would write the resistance. They were writing. So, for them, it was like, Um, The key motifs were, like we said earlier, the gendered nationalism, you know, the um, poetics of love for the motherland, a poetics of um, connecting to um, and identifying with the long ethnic history, whether that be the ancient Greek history and the long history related to that, or uh, the long history related to the medieval moment, like the Ottoman moment, and what comes before. Um, Then we get to a moment after 64 and 74, so those pivotal moments, nationalizing moments, or moments when the island broke, Um, and we see a massive shift in the writing. This time there's a turn to the island. There's a turn to, like with Molest, Pearson, and Demirar. Um, where there's a love for the island and a mourning, I guess, for the break that has happened in the island, the suffering that has been experienced. And here the focus becomes a shared suffering. There is an element of people still separate and the poetics by Greek Cypriots and the poetics by Turkish Cypriots, where they're writing separately about their suffering that the other caused. But then, even if you read these poems together, it's shared pain, shared experiences. And then we've got a poetics post 64, 74 of people working together. So the Cypriots across all divides of diverse backgrounds and diverse languages and diverse religions collectively writing together. Literally, you know, sitting down and saying, hey, let's write a poem about, and then they write together, they, produced scenes, they produced little pamphlets, they had Um And then in the case of, um, remember, because after 74 people from across the divide could not cross to see each other. So London became a base, a, a, a place to meet up. Like the Camden Festival in London, for example, became a site for people across the divide and across all different backgrounds to come together and Um, create a a, a poetics of peace.
0: Can you tell us about Claire Angelides? Can you contextualize her for us?
1: Yeah, Claire Angelides uh, is for me uh, I think a really special um, poet. Some may be surprised. Uh, Actually, a lot of the time I do get this surprise because she was um, like with the other nationalists. And all of the time they're like, why are you focusing on the nationals? But I think it's really significant because of their contribution to the anti-colonial uh, literary counter canon in post-colonial studies or the poetic they contribute. So Claire Angelito, very significant. Um, she was a part of the EOKA, I- um, so the anti-colonial liberation movement um, in the 50s, uh, working quite closely with women in particular. Um, subsequently as a result of the postcolonial failures, she was uprooted from her home in from Augusta, uh, forced displacement, and moved and lived in uh, Nicosia. She writes a poetics that captures the moment, the different moments. Um, her poetry is, yes, rooted in nationalism. So It identifies with Greek with ancient Greeks, with modern Greeks. It identifies the island itself as Greek, Um, but it also has significance in capturing a Cypriot-specific consciousness. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean a consciousness that focuses on the island's history, the island's politics, as in the sense of, what has been happening in the island, um, the anti-colonial moment, the independence moment, the post-colonial failures moment, a writing of this, that is a writing of pain, of suffering, um, of trauma, of uprooting, um, and we end up seeing that her politics, where Angelidis' politics is very similar to that which she would see as the other. So very similar to, for example, my grandmother's experience. My grandmother also experienced uprooting and suffering. Um, and what's really interesting with Claire Angelides is, so in the in the education uh, curriculum, she figures, she was also a minister of education uh, for some time um, and her poem that figures is a poem called Last Words. Um, and what's really significant about this poem, Last Words, is if it funka focus- is basically her moment of passing. Um, so she's, she's in her deathbed and she's going to die. And she's giving her last words to her uh, children and grandchildren, and she's saying in her last words. For example, and I'll just read a, a passage from her poem. She says in her last, one, I double locked the front door. You will see the garden and the walnut tree I watered. The vineyard will, without a doubt, have borne fruit. Here's the key. Here's yeah. the key. It's the houses. Definitely hide it somewhere. From time to time, clean it. It shouldn't rust. Be careful with the king. Just hide the king well. Now, this is one of the most, you know, every time I read it, I just feel so emotional because what this poem is about is, of course, she was uprooted from her home in Famagusta, and she held on to her key as a promise of return to her house, which she left in seventy four, She's written this poem 20, 30 years later, and the key is a promise of return to her children, that they can return to their home. Now this kind of, earlier you asked me about the links to um, other other locations like uh, India, um, or the case of Israel, Palestine, and this notion of the key fetish is really central um, in those poetics as well, where uh, people who are uprooted hold on to their keys as a promise of return. And one day I'm going to return to the home that I was forced to meet. Um, and what was, what was more really interesting with Keira or going back to how she kind of, I, I connected to her writing, um, both because of its kind of contributions and links to other anti-colonial and poetics, but also because her voice just felt like my grand's voice, my grandmother's voice, but um, my grandmother's in the Turkish language and my grandmother is illiterate, so she can't read or write. Uh, So the voice that has spoken to me throughout the years and this particular one, last words, really stood out to me because my grandmother also kept her key. And on my wedding day, she realised my interest in keys and the poems I was telling her about. And she gave me her key from the home that she left behind in Kofilo. Uh, but there is a distinction here in that a lot of Turkish Cypriots and my grandmother herself never longed to return. My grandmother and, and many Turkish Cypriots do not want to return to the former home they left behind because that former home is a moment of ethnic cleansing and suffering. So they don't want to return to that. So there is a distinction, of course, and the distinction, not just between toxic secrets and Greek secrets, but other contexts that we've also been talking about across the world sites so of conflict. Um, but, but what is distinct and really important to recognize here is regardless of someone's political and national position, even if it's an extremist nationalist position, when it comes to that experience of suffering and pain, when it comes to that experience of longing without belonging, that suffering is shared. That suffering has common ground. Uh, That suffering has solidarity. And the way that it's captured in the poetics is also shared um, and common. And I think it, it kind of redefines our understanding of divisions, of partition, of conflict, and redefines our understanding of the island itself, a divided island, one of the last divided islands in the world that's in Europe, but not quite, which has implications on understanding how divided the world.
0: Can you tell us about Cypriot writers in the diaspora? Can you compare and contrast the differences between diasporic voices in the Turkish Cypriot and Greek Cypriot contexts?
1: Yeah. that are really interesting. There's a long history of the diaspora, right? Earlier we spoke about Piyadi um, Desperate so those of the diaspora in Egypt who, who arrived there from as early as 1904, those of the diaspora in Greece, those of the diaspora in Turkey. But then we have um, the diaspora that, that links more strongly to the post-colonial diaspora. So the diaspora in post-colonial terms that went to London. Um, and we see... Um, all of these figures uh, operating within my book, Writing Cyprus, but also within the literatures of and in Cyprus, that are capturing various moments and writing in a very distinct style that contributes to um, literary studies. Um, Stefanides, who we're about, Alev Adil, Aidan Mehmed Ali, Tanel these are all examples of the diaspora. Um, in the moral kind of com- traditional understanding or the conceptual understanding in post studies who arrived in London and, and a, a kind of migrant literature that negotiates with this idea of the bird space and hybridity. And then we also have the others, like I said, uh, the earlier diaspora uh, who were in Egypt, Greece and Turkey and who were writing the moment uh, there we can also go broader, by the way, and we've got writers to the diaspora in Australia, so there's a lot of Cypriots in Australia who are very active in, in contributing to new ways of understanding literature. Um, we have writers in Canada um, who have ended up, there's a really fantastic writer who founded, from Canada, who founded the Poets for Peace group, uh, working closely with, um, mm. Fikreti uh Georgos Moleskis and various others um, to shape what he called the poets for peace. Um, and also, of course, writers in the US and, and across. And what, what all of these diasporas are doing are really kind of disrupting um, the dominant historical political narrative of the island. Yeah, that dead that block of Greek Cypriot. Or tech is Cypriot. Well, it, it, and they say that do you know what? Actually, there's multiple layers that are operating in why being and becoming. There's also multiple layers that are operating in in terms of place and space. Um, and then of course, multiple layers that inspires an impact. There are writing.
0: Can you tell us about the depictions of the Mediterranean Sea in Cypriot literature and poetry?
1: Yes. Oh, this is a lovely question. I think they all are. Uh, but this one. I think this one is is so relevant to all of the literatures that figure in the book, um, and and all the literatures that I've read today in relation to um, the case of Cyprus, but also the case of uh, the Mediterranean. So the Mediterranean Sea is central to to all of the writing. Uh, but what's really interesting is how the sea changes. So just like. Um, Brudel's idea, Ferdinand Brudel's idea of um, a multiple, multiple Mediterranean, a, a, a Mediterranean that is changing all the time, and also Ian Chambers' idea of a new kind of understanding of the Mediterranean, the post-colonial Mediterranean, we see that operating in the literature, uh, but it keeps shifting, right? So what we see with the nationalists is a Mediterranean scene that for the Greek Cypriots is a united, a uniting space, a space that makes the islands a balcony, Greek balconies, all connected to a great Greek network. So it's kind of an ancient Greek conception of Mediterranean, Medi, that that site in between. We see that probably. And then when we look at the uh, Takisit Fred Lashley's writing, there's something completely different happening. This time, it's not a love of the sea, the sea as a connecting force, it's the complete opposite. It's a hatred of the sea. It's like, literally, Suleiman Uluşemge says, openly, um, we told the sea to buck off numerous times from the middle. Apologies for swearing, but that's exactly what he says, right? And so for them, the sea is not connecting, it's dividing. And for the nationalists, it's dividing because they want to unite with Turkey Cypriot, wants to unite with Turkey. So the sea prevents this union, and there's no network to bring them together. And this has very strong links to Islamic and pre Islamic and medieval. Arabic conceptions of the sea, where the sea was never a uniting force, the sea was never a unit of um, connectivity, but the sea is depicted as a site that separates. The sea did not have one single lane. The sea had multiple lanes. It wasn't Mediterranean, but it was the Rumi Sea, the Syrian Sea, the White Sea, the Green Sea and multiple other names. And it, it was a kind of separating force. Then when we get to the more, conte- you know, the after nationalism and the secretist writers and the writers of the diaspora, there is this kind of um, new way of understanding the Mediterranean Sea where it's still holding on to the multiple mutable idea. It's holding on to the connecting idea, but it's also saying it's a kind of a connector but also a site that divides. So all of the palimpsestic it becomes like a, a space, like Chambers says, an archive that looks at both Western and non-Western understandings of the scene uh, and multiple ways that one can negotiate with the scene that is inclusive of uh, both the Western, the non-Western archive, inclusive of the long history and the colossal geography of, of the region. And ultimately, Cyprus becomes this really significant vantage point to see the Mediterranean Sea or Athenis or Rumi or all of the other names we have for the sea in the region. Cyprus like becomes a vantage point to negotiate with these multiple crossings. And I, I'm really happy with you ending with this question because uh, this kind of framing. Uh, and relationship that I kept seeing with the Mediterranean, both as a concept, the Mediterranean as a region, but also the Mediterranean Sea, gave way to me knowing exactly what I'm going to do after writing Cyprus. Um, I finished writing Cyprus, and then I was like, okay, now I'm going to focus on the Mediterranean, on the post colonial Mediterranean, um, post colonial Mediterranean displacement and how displaced people help us understand the region, rewrite the region using Cyprus as a vantage point and thinking of all of the crossings that are operating within the region, that it's not just about Turkish Cypriots and Greek Cypriots or Maronite Cypriots and Armenian Cypriots, but how Cyprus is a kind of hub to access um, multiple displacements that have happened in the region. And when we say this region, it's a region from the, the the time of the Romans and ancient Greeks, to the Byzantines, all the way through to Lusignan, Venetian, French, British, Ottoman, Western and non-Western imperialisms, and that kind of colossal geography that takes us from east, you know, all the way east, all the way through to the north to Uh, Britain and France, um, and the kind of new way of understanding the region through these literatures.
0: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'd like to convey my heartfelt appreciation to you for the erudition and eloquence in all your responses to every question raised and every topic discussed. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for being such a saintly scholar.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation and this dialogue. It was an absolute pleasure to be with you you here today and to speak about writing Cyprus um, and its contributions to postcolonial studies, spatial studies, um, and to our literatures and cultures of the post-colonial world. Thank you.
0: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about what you've been working on since completing this book? Where is your attention gone?
1: My attention has gone to the Mediterranean. So the, your last question earlier um kind of is where I so I ended the book by thinking about this Mediterranean um concept unit. And now um I'm working on that. So I'm I'm working on A research monograph on various interrelated projects on post colonial Mediterranean displacement, but specifically thinking about new ways of reading, writing, and understanding the region um, that we call or that has come to be called the Mediterranean. This is, of course, a Western colonial conception. Um, And I think about it for using Cyprus as a vantage point, um, because Cyprus through writing Cyprus, and all of my readings around Cyprus, is a vantage point and a significant, really important hub for what is happening in the region. Whether that be, for example, what happened in Egypt, so like the Pierides brothers I said earlier, and where uh, the Egyptian Greeks transformed from a macro community of 300,000 to what they are today of 3,000 or whether it be all of the horrors that have happened throughout the years, so um, you know, during World War II and um, 50,000, 60,000 Holocaust survivors arrived in Cyprus and were put into camps there and the literatures of arts that have come out of that, and then subsequently um, you know, things like the Armenian genocide and um, the incidents that happened in the Middle East with The uh, 1928 Nafva, the Six Day War, the um, invasion of Lebanon in 82, all of these uprootings and displacements that have happened. Cyprus has been a hub where not just the people, it's not just people, but renowned, really important literate figures and intellectuals arrived in Cyprus and were able to continue their cultural production. who using Cyprus as a sanctuary or um, Cyprus became a kind of refuge for them to kind of overcome. They will never overcome, of course, the traumas they experience. It had just become a hub for all of these displaced people, regardless of background, regardless of religion, regardless of language, regardless of the tensions and conflicts that they may have with the other. It became this hub for them to kind of write and introducing solidarity uh, and to redefine the region as a result of that so yes, yeah, sorry i've gone on for anyway but that's what i'm working on at the moment
0: amazing best of luck thank you as we bring today's dialogue to a close i am your host on the new books network ari barbalat today it has been my blessing to be in dialogue with Bahriye kemal She is Senior Lecturer in Postcolonial and Contemporary Studies at the University of Kent. Today, we have been discussing her newly published book, Writing Cyprus, Postcolonial and Partitioned Literatures of Place and Space, published by Routledge, 2020. Thank you from the bottom of my heart.